3CR is broadcast from the Rundry lands of the Kulin Nation. 3CR recognises that a treaty was never signed, sovereignty was never ceded, and so-called Australia remains an unresolved crime scene. We pay our respects to elders past and present and stand in solidarity with all Indigenous people resisting the settler colonial state. Across the lines Who would dare to go Under the bridge Over the tracks Separates whites from blacks Choose sides Run for your lives Tonight the riots begin Welcome to Uprise Radio on 3CR. My name is Jackson and I'm here with James. We need to touch on the continuing waves of protests and resistance in the US against racist, violent policing by that settler colonial state. And the issue is close to the hearts of many of our listeners who know that more than 400 Aboriginal people have died in police custody since the Royal Commission into this shameful business in 1991. The cavalier and cruel treatment of this country's first peoples continues from the wanton destruction of sacred sites by mining giant Rio Tinto to the disregard of black bodies and denial of black freedom in prisons for minor offences. Not one Australian police officer has been in prison for an Aboriginal death in custody. Meanwhile, Indigenous children as young as 10 are locked up for far less. James, what have you thought of the protests over the last few days? Yeah, I think um, it's difficult to give a completely up-to-date kind of uh, take on things because things are moving quite fast. So I think that, uh, it, you know, it's important, I'm sure, that most listeners are trying to follow the various news outlets and live streams that are happening to see what's happening. And, uh, you know, it is often a contrasting view of what you might see in the mainstream media and then follow-up story that can be quite different to clearly what's happening on the ground. But Obviously, I think there's quite a lot of issues within it. You know, it's difficult and I'm sure are very challenging for people that are involved in the protests to uh, keep themselves safe and to work out um, where they should be and how they should be responding. And it's difficult to comment from afar, but it is uh, hugely inspiring, I think, that we've seen, I think, you know, close almost a week now of day and night protests on the street, uh, taking the fight up to the the police and the state itself. It's Mm. across, I think, 32 major cities across America that it is the biggest uprising that we've seen in America since the late 60s, early 70s. Mm. And just the level of violence in response from the state has been shocking to see you know i've seen multiple instances of police driving cars police cars into crowds which when you think about what happened charlottesville charlottesville yeah um you know it's just an incredible horrendous scene um and just images of police just arresting bystanders particularly of color um you know on on no pretext with no explanation heaps of violence you know using really violent police holds, you know, while people like, you know, George Floyd are simply saying, I am, I am submitting, I am, I am not resisting, I'm in pain, I cannot breathe. Um, you know, if people, we are going to talk about superannuation today, but uh, there is a rally here in Australia, here in Melbourne, I should say, um, in memorial of George Floyd and also Daniel Dungai, Tara Day, Kuman Jay Walker and 
many others uh, organised by the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance or War. It's on Saturday at 2pm at the steps of Victorian Parliament. And we've already seen protests uh, in Australia as well as New Zealand, Berlin, London. And I think it's very interesting coming out of uh, lockdown from COVID-19 where people have been told that, you know, we can't be within a couple of metres of each other. And then we have seen people arm in arm saying, well, we respect and have taken part in doing our bit to stop that uh, from happening, but we can't sit back and be a part of letting the system take our freedoms away. And it's something that we've spoken on the show a lot about over the past couple of months is uh, concern and worry about how many of our civil liberties are being taken away. And I think that it, one of the things is that I think things could have gone either way at the either end of this. And it's, I think, very heartening to see that people are prepared to put their uh, resistance on the line and say, well, we're not going to stand for this. We need to make a stand. And coming up to the November election in the US, it's going to be very, very interesting. You know, Donald Trump has just uh, sent the US military onto its own people. And he's uh, expecting to be re-elected in a couple of months' time. And very well maybe because the person who he's up against is uh, no better than he is. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Anyway, let's get our guests involved and talk superannuation. You're listening to Uprise Radio on 3CR. John Oliver once said that if you want to do something really evil, make it really boring. And so, superannuation. <laughs> We're lucky today on Uprise Radio to be joined by Daniel Lopez, a returning guest who's a contributing editor at Jacobin Australia and also writes for Eon Mag and Overland. He may or may not still be a member of the Victorian Socialists, who knows these days. And I, also, I still you still are, good to know. And also, yep. Dave Kerrant, one of the founders of the Earthworker Energy, Energy Cooperative, a worker-owned business building solar hot water systems in the Trobe Valley. Dave and Daniel, thanks for joining us. So superannuation's back in the news again because the Morrison government allowed people to cash out some super for rent and groceries during the pandemic and about half a million mainly struggling Australians did. The scheme was made compulsory for all workers by the Keating Labor government in 1992, supposedly to benefit workers in retirement. But recently, Jacobin and other outlets, including The Conversation and The Guardian, have written that the scheme actually enshrines inequality. Daniel, what is wrong with the superannuation scheme? Oof. Look, there's so many flaws built into the scheme from the very beginning. I think probably the, the, the single thing about it that enshrines inequality the most is that it, in a sense, magnifies um, income inequality. So, you know, if you... If, for example, you're a very low-income worker, a minimum wage worker, and you're, you're compulsorily contributing to superannuation, um, you will earn interest on that, but at a far lower rate than someone who's on 150000 a year, you know, like a lawyer or, you know, a senior academic, what have you. And then compounded over a couple of decades, um, since, you know, 92 at least, or since the 80s, depending on who we're talking about, that can result in millions of dollars of, of income difference um, by the age of retirement, which means someone who's been on a high salary... Um, for most of their life, they're in a position to invest in, in properties, um, you name it. And someone who's been on minimum wage, well, they may have enough for a retirement if they're lucky. Um, and then, you know, other existing inequalities, for example, gender income um, inequalities, um, they're, they're really compounded by it. Um, older single women are the highest, um, what's the statistic? You know, 
that poverty is most widespread amongst older single women in retirement. Um, and that's because many of them end up retiring with no superannuation um, at all. So it's often presented superannuation as, you know, employers putting aside a little bonus for us workers because we don't know how to save for our future. And I think it's important to remember that it is actually our money. It's our workers' money, you know, that's been put aside. And, it, and it now that workers' money, particularly in the industry super funds, is, you know, pushing $3 trillion, you know, enough money to buy the stock exchange outright. Now, Dave, Earthwork Cooperative is worker-owned and operated, and a key principle there is that workers put capital to work for their benefit and not the other way around. If industry union-controlled funds have $3 trillion at their disposal, what kind of future could this build for workers, and why isn't it talked about in that, in that way more often, in a way to create a better society for all workers to live in, not just the wealthy ones that can build a big nest egg? Well, the ways it can be used uh, to create a, an economic democracy are almost um, endless. We, we, we have so much opportunity within, uh, within superannuation. The minute we begin to view it as socialised capital, uh, you know, when Turnbull went over to America and spoke to the American governors, he referred again to our superannuation as, as privatised capital. He said, we do great things back home with public-private partnerships using our superannuation. So I think um, one of the first things that has to happen with super is that our side, the general historical left, I suppose, um, need to get clear on what superannuation is. It, it is the unused component of the workers' wage. It's socialised capital. It's in a collective fund. It's not private capital. Taking up that argument about releasing it into the hands of individuals just shows you the way the, the economic elites regard, um, you know, regard superannuation and want us to regard it in the same way, that it's, 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 it's down to individuals making choices. Well, that's not the way it's been used. Uh, we've, we've maintained now for, what, since 2009, I think, uh, in Earth Worker, that um, in the 70 percentile of all the capital invested in this country is our super. Now that's a, that's a post-capitalist reality, but none of the power institutions, none of the ways we make decisions as a nation, um, none of the emphases we have within our economy uh, reflect that fact. So we've sort of got some nothing out to do in our own movements about just what it is. What sort of uh, organisational structure should surround um, uh, uh, socialised capital? And we've, we've argued it needs to be a democratic structure so that we can, we can actually be engaged with that capital. We can use it for the common good. Um, so in Earthworker, we, for months now, we've been working away with the four construction unions. We were able to pull the, pull the construction unions into a, uh, a committee that's looking at a powering Victoria cooperative. Uh, and we've identified a, a bunch of areas of work, including um, green housing for young union families um, uh, that we believe we can begin work on this year. So we're, we're talking to superannuation funds about that, saying that, that you know, the, the role now is to create a pole of attraction for our socialised capital, our super. I think um, despite the fact that Jackson mentioned how many people have access to their super, and I think, you know, vast majority of those people are people who have lost their 
job and are using that um, you know, to supplement income during this COVID-19 period. But as a, as a counterpoint to that, we told, you know, don't just withdraw your super now because, you know, in the future, it, it'll be worth X amount, you know, even though it's essentially being gambled on the, the stock market, that over a period of time, this will happen. I guess for, for both Dave and Daniel, you know, what are the risks though for workers if we have our, you know, we never know what's going to happen with our pension, you know, once housing has become so inaffordable. What should workers be thinking about for the future when, you know, they are wanting to access that super? Because it is a scary thought, I think, to retire without that access. So what would that alternative look like? What can we say to perhaps to younger workers today? I guess it's pretty woeful that this is the support that Morrison made available to most people. You know, this shouldn't have been the way that people were supported in the early days of the crisis, you know? Like, for all that I've got criticisms of the superannuation system, workers should not have had to dip into their own savings um, to cover um, an economic crisis that, you know, the, the consequences of which were prepared long in advance of the pandemic. That said, I withdrew my super, and I was very glad that I did. Um, and, you know, I say that not just because it's my own story, but because, um, well, one of the statistics I saw, the majority, apparently, of withdrawals at least that happened in, in the first um, couple of months of the scheme were on average $8,000, despite the fact that you could withdraw up to 10,000 this year and another 10,000 next year. And what that tells you, and there are other stats that back this up, is that the majority of withdrawals were from very low balance superannuation accounts and they were concentrated around industries that were most affected by the crisis and also most affected by casualization. Um, so academia, which is where I worked for a couple of years after I finished my PhD, um, thank God I'm out of that, but now I'm in journalism, which is hardly any better. Um, but then, you know, so media, um, but also hospitality. And so what you have is a lot of younger workers who've never really had, you know, permanent jobs, let alone a full-time, high-paid permanent job, um, often with very scattered superannuation accounts, um, with very low balances. And in my case, and I think this is indicative of many other people's, um, it, it, the balance reduced every six months. And that was mainly to fees. Um, you know, the, the returns on the investments that, you know, this is Unisuper, so it's one of the higher performing funds, the returns on the investments that they made never covered the fees. Um, and then they've also got the other scams, you know, the opt-out, life insurance and all that garbage. Um, so, you know, like, from my point of view, I'm not thinking about my retirement. I was thinking about paying off my credit card. And I think there's a lot of other people in that situation. Um, you know, and that's, that's a sad reality, I think, of superannuation. It's interesting no. what you're saying about the groups that withdrew the super. They're also the groups that were least supported by the government's job keeper program, you know, hospitality, yep. as you mentioned, universities. And, and, and to Dave's point before, it is about this model of uh, making individuals responsible for the society that they live in or the type of society that they experience. I feel like at the moment, the superannuation scheme is a little bit like a slave religion. It says suffer now, live in poverty now. And in the future, you'll live in this retirement afterlife where golf courses run like rivers and cruise ships gallivant across the plains. But of course, that's not the reality for many older, older Australians. You know, as you said, Daniel, older women particularly are, are more and more living in poverty at risk of homelessness, these types of things. So I want to hear a bit more, Dave, about what could we do with the money? You mentioned sustainable green housing, and I find it amazing that the Morrison government is giving money to homeowners to do renovations instead of building social housing. How can governments talk about possible upcoming austerity and the further slashing of, of living conditions for everyday people when we have this massive amount of workers' savings that could be spent on something like 
a transition to clean energy or heaven forbid public housing that the that the society is is crying out for yeah no look i think you know you you raise the 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 the, the most fundamental of points when you look at superannuation because socialized capital is looking for a social home it's looking for um, like, like a bit like information technology you know it's uh, uh, currently being used by all sorts of forces and, and uh, class interests um, in, in a way that uh, simply doesn't allow information technology to live up to its promise, which is for mass decision making of a democratic nature to run the places where we work and where we live. Um, get that right and a lot of other things flow. Well, similarly with superannuation and socialised capital. We need the new green energy grid, the new green transport grid, the new green water grid, the land care grid. We need these things put in place and we, we ought to um, make sure that we uh, have all of those things along with housing in the hands of the people. So building up that strong social sector of the Australian economy and the global economy, uh, getting our social sector fair trade agreements, SSFTAs in place so that we lock in with workers in Argentina. Uh, in, in, in Venezuela, in, in North America. At the same time as we talk about socialised capital, um, we, we've got to make sure we, we build that home for it to live in. And, and at the moment, uh, when you go talk to the super funds about some of the things we're wanting to do, their first thought, or the, the, the first thing for them to do is they reach for this methodology where they try to slot us into the private sector and private capital and they start looking for private partners for us in order to be able to achieve what we're doing. The private partners can't do what we need to do. I don't know how many times capitalism's got to tell us that um, they're, they're stuffed before we start believing them. We've got to organise for ownership because only a distributed ownership model um, can create the sort of social relations where superannuation can live up to its, um, its, its full capacity. I wonder, I've got a couple of sort of questions and, and possibly... Um you know, I'd like to. I'd like to see what your opinion on on some of these is, um, Dave. So, I would have thought, in terms of using super as a as a mechanism, um, as a socialised capital, um, in order to, to build a green economy, in order to build um, the cooperative sector, that's you know I'm totally behind. I reckon probably the first step, and, and I imagine we agree on this, would be defending super against. Um, you know, the Liberals' various attempts to remove what worker control does exist. You know, there was a scheme that Morrison was talking about, I think, last year of um, changing the legislation that mandates a um, necessary 50% union representation on industry super boards. Um, and that, that will be a catastrophe um, if, if, if unions lose that 50% on, on union super boards. Um, and then, of course, he's also suggested that superannuation funds be used to bail out things like Virgin Australia um, and so on and so forth, to buy up bad debt. And that's, you know, it's quite clear that, that the rich have their eyes on these funds. I would suggest the first thing would be to consolidate the private super funds out there um, and bring them under um, a much broader umbrella. And that's immediately a way to cut the fees. It's $30 billion a year in super fees. Um, and that's almost Australia's military budget. And this is ridiculous. This is just duplication of effort because there's dozens of funds that do the same thing. So consolidate them. We need a universal pension um, and a good pension. But then beyond that, you can use a very similar mechanism to the superannuation mechanism in that mandatory employer contributions to contribute towards this socialised fund of capital that then with, with sufficient democratic control, um, and that might be the challenging one, can be used as a, um, a fairly powerful mechanism for socialising the economy and, and building towards a better future. 
Well, firstly, I, I agree with what you say, Danny. I, I think that hits the nail on the head. Um, uh, the second point I want to make is whenever you look at our, our movements and the way we talk about super, to go back to that point and the way we, we, um, the, the way we frame it, um, we still talk about in the union movement, we still talk about an employer contribution. Well, there was never an employer contribution, you know, uh, unless you're going to refer to our wages as an employer contribution. <laughs> so it's work we've already done. We've been paid for it and we set part of it aside. So again, you could say, oh, well, that's just semantics, but it's not because the whole way in which the current controls over workers' capital are put in place, um, that that concept, the minute you have a concept that there's an employer contribution, well, then you, you have to agree that there's a, an employer right over how we use our capital. And that's why, of course, they sit on the boards of our funds, <laughs> which, you know, like that's, that's insane. So I agree with you. Let's get rid of all of the, the dead weight, you know, that's just simply uh, creating elite positions that go and lobby parliament for all the wrong things, you know, to put our money into uranium mining, wood chipping, war, uh, you know, we've got to end this insanity. Let's, let's get an understanding that not only is our labour underpinning capital now, but... Our capital's but underpinning our, capital. Yes. Now, dare I say it, the grey old German man, old Carl, um, him and that crowd, they nailed it. Like they said, you know, capitalism would develop to a stage where it was unable to contain the processes that it would re release. And I think super and, and information technology and a bunch of other things uh, are in that category. We need to find the appropriate means. And we've said, look, part of that, part of that is developing a good, strong social sector of the economy based on cooperatives and mutuals that are truly cooperatives. We, we can reshape the economy, Marx's idea of building that new world within the shell of the old, if we simply use the tools that we ourselves have created, but they've been taken out of our hands. To Daniel's point before, though, about union-controlled funds and their links to the Labor Party, the Federal Labor Party, it was very interesting to see Greg Combe write an impassioned plea in the Australian of all places in late April for Australians to keep their money in superannuation and not withdraw it, no matter the financial struggles that they might be under. And the noble reasons that he gave for keeping your money in super were not about building, you know, uh, socialised capital, as you say, Dave, or, you know, creating an environment where workers will have a have dignity in retirement and, you know, uh, paid for healthcare and housing and things. No, it was for safeguarding the economy as it is and buttressing the $80 billion of property that the funds themselves own. And, allowing fund managers to ease the ease of a 30-year investment horizon. You know, he's painting the Labor Party as responsible stewards of mm. the current system, not as people working to change the current system so that it delivers more for workers. But, you know, so I, I feel a little uh, sceptical about the role of some of the bigger unions and the Labor Party in delivering uh, for workers in this, in this sphere. And I wonder... Daniel, whether you had any takes on why the Labor Party appear to have moved so far from their roots in the last, I don't know, a couple of decades. Oof, that's a huge question, but I do think superannuation is part of the part of the picture, and it's it's an often overlooked part of the picture. Uh, I think it's a very revealing. Albanese is not a man um, well suited or with a great proficiency in taking a stand. Um, but one of the the first things he took a, a very mild stand about when Morrison was outlining his bailout was 
um, the, the, the uh, measures that Morrison brought in to give people access to $20,000 worth of their super. And I think that's quite revealing. Why was this the first thing that, that Albo started to complain in, in such a moderate tone about? Um, and it goes back to the 1980s and the Accord, I think. Um, and really, you know, the Labor movement, as I see it, both the ALP and, and many of the unions, um, although, um, you know, there are increasingly there are voices in the left unions that are very critical of the Accord. But the ALP and, the Le and many unions, I think, are still beholden to the Accord. And, you know, often when we talk about the Accord on the left, you know, we sort of, we emphasise the coercive elements of it. Um, you know, like the deregistration of the BLF, um, you know, the measures that brought in um, the basically privileged um, arbitration and, and, with, and weakened the right to strike and things like that. But there was also a very big carrot involved in the Accord, and I think that was superannuation. And so I think you've seen over, over time a shift in the way unions um, fund themselves away from relying on um, rank and file density, away from you know, members' dues, and towards relying on their investments in superannuation funds and their connections with superannuation funds to keep themselves ticking along. And as well, and so that's, I think, been quite a conservatising influence. And I think as well, there's a political component to it. You know, you've got this generation of ALP leaders and, and some union leaders who get to the end of their parliamentary career or they get to the end of, of their union career and then they jump across and they go on the board of a super fund. And they're all of a sudden mates with the financial class and they're all of a sudden responsible stewards of the economy and they're implicated in, in a system of effectively, um, well, they are the representatives of, of workers in you know, this vast accumulation of capital, but yet they've placed themselves under the tutelage of you know, financiers, um, the banking class. And it's been enormously conservatising, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's a real shame. And I think there's a big political overhead to this because, well, let me put it this way. You can just change the laws around super and Liberals can do that. And so it builds in a massive weakness it builds in the possibility, the permanent possibility, that this accumulation of capital will be taken from underneath us. Um, and, you know, the whole principle of the Accord politically was built on, I guess, um, consensus and compromise and the idea that a national interest can be articulated that avoids any sense of class struggle, avoids any sense of the militancy of the labour movement that, you know, we've had in our history. And that's been enormously... I think that's... Um, what would the word be? That's part of explaining why... The Labour Party in particular has shifted over the last few decades away from a more, what you might call a class struggle approach to politics, at least associated with the left, you know, an approach that was willing to take a stand, that was willing to fight for workers' rights or advocate social transformation, um, and towards a much more moderate conciliatory and, and diplomatic path, which, you know, you look at bloody Albanese and he's, he's, he's from the left. You know, this guy couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag. I think um, just, I think we're coming towards the end of the show as well. And I think that I just wanted to, I guess, wrap some of the ideas together and talk about, you know, what kind of steps could come to kind of foresee this kind of future we're talking about. And I think particularly, you know, from some of the things that Dave's saying, I think that can really tie into, you know, the economic and environmental crisis that we've been facing now for quite a while. And, you know, one of the more recent kind of responses to that is the talk of a Green New Deal or a Green-led uh, economic reform of the economy and we've seen you know huge amounts of money uh, debt you know that's been taken on by the federal government and i think you know we would have hoped that that a green-led economic recovery would be a way to recover that it's clearly not going to happen under the morrison government 
but using the super in the way that you know Dave's kind of outlined is certainly a way that could happen even outside of government. You know, that's a way that workers themselves could be investing into this technology, into these kind of industries to galvanise the Australian uh, working class to, to profit from that, really, to profit into, you know, having a secure future and to be having secure jobs and a clean, you know, sustainable future. But what are the next steps to kind of make that happen? I think that if Dave, you know, really articulated a great way that these kind of things could happen. What kind of things could people do to make this, you know, be a, a reality? Well, firstly, uh, join Earthworker and help lead it. Um, uh, we say that and we mean it. We, we you know, the older ones who, who, who got it to its feet, well, to our knees anyway, um, we, we, uh, we mean that. And you'll find when you come into Earthworker, you'll find a younger generation there who, who are leading it. A lot of them don't have a labour movement background. They come in out of, you know, your quit coals and, your, and, and those wonderful organisations. We have to have working class people in there uh, and, and collectively leading this process because the thing about Earthworker is it's set up to organise for engagement. Most of the structures we live within now are set up to organise expropriation. Um, um, and the, one, of the, one of the worst things we could allow to happen would be for superannuation to be used by capital or continue to be used by capital as a means of externalising its costs. And that's what that releasing the, the funds, it's no blame there on the worker who's accessing it, but it was simply capital, wasn't it? It was capital and governments um, um, externalising the cost, the, the enormous costs they've had to take on in order to be able to deal with um, capitalist collapse. So. We've got to put a, a, an alternative in place. So getting in there, um, writing this large across the economy now, like, like to have four construction unions in the room with, you know, um, representatives from state government, uh, City of Melbourne, Melbourne University, Friends of the Earth, 350.org, that, that awkward alliance you need to build if we're going to effectively deal with um, climate emergency. Uh, but it's all very well to bring people into the room what are you going to do when you get in there is the thing. Well, uh, building that strong social sector of the Australian economy is going to take thousands of us, hundreds of thousands of us, uh, because we can't do it. It's not like normal politics um, in, in, within a capitalist society where you can get away with people being, you know, forcibly disengaged from their own lives. Well, this is all about re-engagement, um, but in very practical ways where we're looking at engaging around putting the climate jobs in place um, coming to terms with what happens when capitalism continues on this um, trajectory of collapse. Um, stop, once and for all, let's stop putting our eggs in that basket that's demanding of capitalism things that it keeps telling us they can't do. <laughs> We've got to accept that fact. It, it can't deal with the climate emergency, it can't afford it. I'll give you an example. The offshore wind farm in Gippsland. It's an $8 billion cost, the star of the South, right? Now that's, that's the Scandinavian super fund doing that. Where's our super? <laughs> what have we got something on the bottom of our shoes? Well, you know, we've got to get in there. We've got to start using it for the common good. And now uh, the problem they're having down there is that $8 billion cost, that'll be the most expensive power produced on this continent. So what do they do? Capitalism can't do that. We can because we value things literally in that economic sense. Our value, uh, the way we value things is different. So. 
uh, uh, we can carry that cost because the outcomes we want will, will, will be real economic and social um, and, dare I say, political outcomes. So, you know, we've got to get our super in there, partnering with them. We've got to do that, write that large across the economy. We've got to do it in a coordinated way. And that's, again, Earthworker. I mean, just Dave, get into Earthworker and run it. I've got to thank you. And thank you, Daniel, as well. That's a really inspiring note to leave, leave on. Uh, and thanks, James, as well. Thank you both for joining us today on Uprise Radio. Um, yeah, and keep going with the work that you're doing. It's great to hear about it. And thanks for your insights. Good, uh, good on you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um.